Hi, I'm Richard Niles. Welcome to a special presentation of Radio Richard. Shell Tell Me is one of the most innovative and influential record producers in popular music. It could be said, with a great deal of justification, that he created the sound of the 1960s. I'm talking about the power, the glory, the in-your-face, gut-punching kick of rock. If you're lucky enough to meet Shell, the first thing that immediately hits you is that you're talking to a very clever man with a brain the size of Jupiter that got him on the Quiz Kids TV show as a kid. He worked for three years on television and then worked as an engineer at Conway Recorders in L.A., where he was able to learn how things worked and then improved on it. Urged to go to London by an English colleague, tell me entered and then dominated the swinging scene like Julius Caesar conquering Gaul. History was made and remade again with hits by The Kinks and The Who, Manfred Mann, Pentangle, Lee Hazelwood, and many more. So sit back and enjoy a very special chance to meet the creative force that is Shell Talmy. Shell Talmy, so happy to be able to talk to you. Thank you for inviting us into your kitchen. It is my pleasure. Thank you. <laughs> um, the first question I'm going to ask you is just what kind of music you listened to as a kid that you really liked and that influenced you in terms of sound? As a kid, yeah. I, obviously, I'm old enough to listen to American Songbook. Right. And that's where I started and uh -huh. um, became aware of uh, R&B. I think the first record that really impressed me was G by the Crows. And I kind of went on from there and started listening to everything I could. And, and at what point did you listen to the records and say, wow, how did they make those sounds? Uh, it's no point. No point, okay. <laughs> I suppose when I became an adult and I finally got into uh, recording engineering. I mean, up till then, there was no, uh, no necessity to find out how the stuff was done. Right. Well... It seems that you worked your way up from the kind of uh, assistant engineer to learning your craft. Um, were there any people or studios that you particularly were thought were helpful in that? Well, it's the first studio I ever really worked in was the one that Phil Yen owned. It was a very nice, uh, mainly band studio. We had a uh, orchestral studio upstairs and um, how I got in with I met Phil at uh, here in LA there was a Italian restaurant called Martoni's which was the music biz hangout <laughs> and um, uh, and also other people that had anything to do with entertainment and I had been working at ABC television so that kind of uh, qualified me for hanging out there. <laughs> I was there with a friend and um, met Phil and I was just about leaving uh, ABC because I had had it with the politics at a major studio. Right. And um, albeit I started doing uh, work there as a page and cue cards and floor management and um, it just was uh, not a situation I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. So I met Phil and uh, told him I just left there and I was looking for something to do. And he said, would you like to learn how to be a recording engineer? I said, sounds good to me. So <laughs> Great. Uh, I started and uh, uh, he showed me the 
uh, studio and how to use the console, which we're talking about 1961, or I think mm -hmm. here maybe even 1960. Right. So we're talking about fairly primitive uh, equipment. This mm -hmm. was a, uh, uh, a console with round pots instead of uh, right. sliders. And uh, I picked it up quickly because I do have this technical background, always have been mm -hmm. technical. And three days later, I did my first solo engineering, which was kind of interesting because um, uh, I was like tossed out, you know, sink or swim. Right. And um, I got all, all the miking was fine. I had no problem with that. Mm. And the first thing I did was a jazz combo and got all the recording done really nicely and everything was cool up until the time they they wanted a uh, splice oh. which i had never done right and in fact at that point in time phil was doing freehand splicing yes with just a pair of scissors yeah and so i must have lost about 10 pounds sweating <laughs> off of that i yes. finally got it right yes i mean it became lots easier later when they had you know equipment to put right. the tape into and all that kind of stuff yes, right yes okay it didn't exist then <laughs> right of course yeah so so um what strikes me is that you you kind of uh, developed really quickly you went through the thing of assimilating the knowledge uh and and kind of imitating what you had seen done before but you quickly moved on to thinking of ideas of your own of how to record well we were at a stage where uh, rock and roll who was just coming in and blues had already been in and R&B had already made some inroads and uh, 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 the first thing that occurred to me is we're breaking new ground I mean uh, anything we did was kind of new so right. yes I absolutely I was thinking of ways to improve on you know what was happening and you were allowed to do that by the people you were working with. Yeah, well, Phil in particular was great. He was English, by the way, and yeah. uh, uh, and he gave me lots of leeway to do lots of stuff, especially on downtime. I could go experiment, which I did a lot of. That leads me to the next thing, which is that uh, you seem to have also had no trouble making the right contacts in the in the L.A. music scene. Um, well, it's because I hung out at the right places. Ah. <laughs> Besides Martoni's, there was PJ's, which is a right. major place. Uh -huh. And, uh, yeah, no, I was, was very social. I was out most of the nights of the week and uh, went to uh, all the cool places. So, yeah, I made contacts. Now, it's interesting that my friend Steve Rowland probably was hanging out at the same places, but... He says that the first time you really met was in England. We met right? in England. We never met in, in right. L.A. And, and I never knew him at any of the places I hung out at. But he was mainly in Beverly Hills, and these places were not. Right, I see. Okay. So um, one of the things that really impresses me about your career is how businesslike you were. And I think that sort of sets you apart from a lot of the people who were working at the time, you were always very sensible about the business side. Well, so, it, it seemed only logical. I mean, you can't go into something and try to make it work unless you know something about it. Yes, but yeah. what, I'm at, what I'm saying yeah. is you were very young. Yeah. Uh, I know when I was 
your age. I knew nothing about the business, really. I, yeah. I had to learn by doing. But, but you seem to have had a natural affinity for, for that. Do you, is there a reason for that? For I don't think so. My father was a dentist, a great dentist, mm -hmm. and not a particularly good businessman. <laughs> so um, probably if I got it from anybody, it was my mother. She was okay. quite shrewd about stuff like that, albeit that she didn't have the education for it, but she picked up quickly. Uh -huh. When you got to England, this the the story is famous about how you uh, used uh, some Beach Boys acetates in mm. order to get yourself into DECA. But that, to me, takes a person with a lot of confidence and a lot of uh, understanding of how the business works. Is that is that what you were when you came to England? I went to England ostensibly on a five-week visit okay. because. As I said, Phil, uh, who owned the studio, was English, and he kept extolling the virtues of England and London in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, I said, fine, okay, I'm going to go for five weeks and, and visit London, and I want to go to Paris and you know check it out and all that kind of stuff before mm -hmm. life passed me by. I was uh -huh. like you know, 21, 22, something like that. Exactly. And um, so I, I went, by, and what I did take the precaution of trying to prepare myself as well as possible. And one of my very good friends was Nick Vinay, who was uh, at Capital A&R, one of the heads of A&R at Capital, and from whom I got the Beach Boys and Lou Rawls acetates, because I told him I was going to London, and since I didn't have a whole lot of bread, it would be nice if I could earn you know, some money there for a week or two. And um, he said, I just take my asses and tell him you did them, because I didn't, I hadn't done anything. So uh, I did. And I also took the precaution of asking my other friends in the biz here if they knew anybody in England. And I got some very good contacts, and uh, one of which, who was uh, the uh, head of UA Publishing, Wow. and a very nice guy, uh, made an appointment for me with Dick Rowe at DECA. Mm -hmm. And uh, I walked in to see Dick, and I chose to be, as he would have expected, a brash American, because <laughs> I figured, what the hell, I'm going back in five weeks anyhow, it doesn't really matter. And I, and I did have a, a deal back here by that time with, uh, a, re with a record label. Okay. And uh, so I, I, I basically walked in and said something to the effect, but not quite as bad as what the way I'm going to describe it is, that uh, arguably I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread was invented <laughs> as a producer. And here's what I just did. Gave the two acetates of Lou Rawls and the Beach Boys. He played and he said, you start today. <laughs> Great. So the, the first artist he gave me was Doug Sheldon, who was semi-well-known, okay. and and I did a record with him, which uh, which actually was pretty good. I don't remember what it was called now, um, okay. but it didn't do that, that much. The next thing, I, and in retrospect, I think they were probably testing me, they gave me three harmonica players called <laughs> The Bachelors. Oh, yes. And uh, uh, I had to, uh, had them up in my tiny flat that I had uh, in, uh, in Belgravia, mm -hmm. um, 
uh, actually was in Belgrade, Chelsea, one, one of the two, and it was wherever okay. I, I was at that point. And uh, for six weeks, and I was uh, basically teaching them how to sing because they only played harmonica. Really? And they hadn't sung before that? No, they really hadn't. And uh, <laughs> one of the guys that they thought was the singer, I changed to the one that became the eventual singer. Right. And I taught him how to do harmonies and all that kind of stuff. Nice. And uh, the first uh, session I did it with them resulted in Charmaine, which was a hit. Exactly. So I was, you know, off, hit. off and running. Right. And uh, and at that point, of course, in time, at that time, nobody would have thought of picking up a phone and asking about uh, my bona fides. Right. So. Um, they would write letters, and they did, and two or three which came to friends of mine who responded in kind about what a great producer I was. Right, right. And, and, yeah. and, and the interesting thing about that is the bachelors themselves, those guys, were absolutely willing to submit themselves to your ideas and, and, and well, do the work and become singers. Well, I mean, the whole point was I, uh, that that Decca didn't want them to just be harmonica players uh -huh. in any event. Right. So they said, we need to, you know, them to do something more than that. So right. uh, that's, I, I got down to it, yeah. I mean, I could certainly tell them what to do and how right. to go do it. So. <laughs> right, right. And they listened to the 21-year-old kid who was oh, telling Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's Well, terrific. because I was employed by Decca, you know. I was right. the I was the producer at Decca, so yeah. Right. They were going to do that. Now, one of the things also that interested me was the fact that you not only just worked for DECA, but you, uh, at least from what I've, I've heard, you've always insisted on having a production team. When I walked in, again, doing my brash bit, I yes. insisted on uh, the fact that I was an independent producer, not employed by... Uh, by Decca as a as a, 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 a an employed producer, right? Uh, which meant which meant at that particular time, as I know you spent so much time there, sure. That uh, I was going to get royalties because uh, at, when I arrived in 1962, nobody, no producer was getting royalties, they were getting strictly a weekly salary. That's right, like George Martin, same yeah, thing. Yeah, they all, exactly, and I said, no, I'm sorry, you know, uh, I get royalties. Uh, right. And uh, he said, uh, and fortunately, Dick was very pro-American, so he understood all that, and he said, okay, that's that's fine. Okay. <laughs> and, but you got royalties plus, obviously, a, a fee. Oh, yes, I got a fee, weekly right. fee, yeah. Right, and so did, at that point, did you have... Uh, a manager that that handled the contracts for you, or did you just stipulate what you wanted in the contract? I uh, asked around and <clears throat> was told about Davenport Lions that right. was really good, and I yes. went to them, and um, they became my lawyers, and they actually worked uh, they worked out my work permit and all that kind of thing. Nice, nice. Yeah, I used them myself. <laughs> uh, Sam Lyons. Yeah, was, yeah, and so did so did yeah. I, and my parents used him. Yeah. Mm. Going forward then, so all of the artists that you had, you you owned the masters? Is that the situation? No, not not originally. Not not the ones with Decca, no. No, okay. No, the um, well, I, I was happy to be with Decca mm. up until the time because one of the duties I also 
was told that I should have, which is fine with me, is that I should go see if I can find other talent that they would like. Right. And I was happy to be out every night of the week anyhow, which was part of my uh, thing to do. Yes. And um, I found both uh, Manfred Mann and uh, Georgie Fame. Right. Brought them both in, uh, did demos with them, right. and was sure they were going to be signed, and both were rejected. Hmm. And, I, and I thought to myself, I guess this is the time for me to do what I said I was going to do was be an independent producer. Right, so right. the next act I found, which happened to be the Kinks, I took straight into pie. I didn't bother with Stecker at that point. Right. And so with the Kinks, for instance, and and both the other demos that you did, mm -hmm. did you owned the masters yes. of whatever you did. Yeah. Well, you see that... Well, I, except for the Kinks. I had, I had to sign them to, to pie. I didn't own the masters okay. with that. But you still got a, a royalty. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well... You see, but all of that is, is interesting to me, maybe because I'm mercenary and because I'm mm -hmm. such a bad businessman myself. Mm -hmm. But I'm in awe of anybody who could have thought of doing that at 21, you know. Uh, well, I mean, I think I started from the absolute fact that I did not want to work for nothing. Right, yes, very true. <laughs> and uh, so I found out a way, <laughs> found out the way not to work for nothing. Right, right, and a great way it was. Um, and everyone knows the iconic records that you did with the Kinks and the Who. Mm -hmm. But what interests me, if you could tell me a little about your relationship, for instance, with Ray Davis. And, and I mean, you're, you have there a fantastic songwriter and a fantastically creative person. What was your relationship like with him in making these records? Ray is a uh, notional kind of guy. He's very, very talented, one of the, the great songwriters, without question, everybody knows that. Mm -hmm. uh, early on, when I took him into Pi and got him signed, uh, this is after I found him because their manager wandered into a publisher in Denmark Street, where I happened to be that day about to have lunch with the guys there. <laughs> and with the demo, and I was the only one available to listen to the demo, so uh, that's why. I, that's how I heard the Kinks first. Right. And I said, "Yeah, I think I can get him a deal," and I took him to Pi. Right. Um, okay, Ray. Uh, we're talking about. We're all fairly young at that point. Right. Um, he was compliant. Uh, to be, I think, quite honest about the whole thing. Once we started. He was immediately, I think the proper word is, jealous of the fact that I was producing and that he wasn't. Uh -huh. But however, he went along with it and he was fine. And uh, he was very prolific, as I'm sure you know. Yes, indeed. And he could go away for an evening and come back the next day with like six or ten songs already written. Amazing. And we'd go through the material, I was choosing the material. Right. And um, uh, the, except for the first the first four things, I was, quote unquote, we were ordered by Pi uh -huh, <laughs> to do. Right. One of which was Long Tall Sally, which was a big mistake, I right. thought. Right, And three other things that they found that they, they thought we should do. And, and of course, none of them really did anything. Right. So Ray got pissed off. And, and so did I. And he came back with, you really got me. 
Yes. And I, I heard about six bars. I said, that's it. Okay. Right. <laughs> don't have to go any further than here. Right. So this was the make or break session. We went in and did that. And the rest is, I suppose, is history. Yes, indeed. And, and that brings up another thing, which also... I wrote a book about songwriting, and, mm -hmm. and be, so the subject interests me a lot. Now, you seem to have had a seriously accurate um, ability to choose the hits. You'd hear 10 songs, and you'd say, okay, let's do this one and that one. Right. How, did you have, if you were to give advice to a songwriter and say, okay, here are the elements you need to have in a song for a hit, what would those elements okay. be? Well, I think i got to start answering this in an oblique fashion. Thank you. In that, um, my ability to pick hit songs is not something that you can be taught. I think it's either something you can do or you can't do. And why, when I've explained this before, I kind of liken it to somebody who was born with the ability to wiggle their ears, which is something I can't do. <laughs> right. Uh, and a very few people can. Yes. Um, I was apparently born with the ability to hear a song I thought was going to be a hit, and that was a hit. Right. Well, but I mean, for instance, if you heard a song like You Really Got Me, yeah. what, what, what would it be that you said, you know, you said in the first few bars, you said, this is this is a good one. What were the things that hit you? Was okay, well, I, I think it probably goes back to uh, I was a, a certainly a, an avid listener to radio uh, at the time, which was the only thing you could listen to avidly. Right. Um, and there was uh, and all the stations were then starting to play rock and roll, which they started. And right. So I knew all the songs, learned all the lyrics. When I heard a song I liked. It was it reflected what the public liked, so right. that's when I kind of discovered that we were on the same page, right. me, me and the public. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and uh, so it became easy when I heard a song. I said, "I like it," so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a chance and say the public likes it too. It seems to me that both Pete Townsend and Ray Davis were social commentators maybe not formalizing it in that way but oh, they no, actually they were, were they were the two best of their era without question yes and, and i wound up with both of them which was uh, a a i'd love to say brilliant in my part but it was extremely lucky yeah well <laughs> luck is important i guess yeah. in, in in all things but uh, it seems to me that they represent a style of songwriting or a uh, an idea of songwriting which, where the songwriter does comment on the world around them in a in a kind of socially conscious way um, and and it seems to me that pop songs today are not doing that and there's a vast difference between the kind of things that well I'm glad you said that I mean pop songs today uh, and I have said this repeatedly to various people is tell me something that's in the charts that anybody's going to be humming two years from now. Mm -hmm. And there's always dead silence. Mm -hmm. um, there is not a whole lot of relativity in what I hear in the charts. There's lots of repetition, yes. and there's lots of so-called melody, which is not really much of a melody. Nope. And, um, and there is two generations of kids who think this is wonderful. Hmm. Um, 
only now recently has music as I think music is starting to come back and probably started by Billie Eilish and, right. her, and her brother right. because regardless of the fact that they're doing everything digitally, they still have melodies and the music is actually very good. Indeed. And this being a copycat industry, others have started doing it as with uh, Thundercats and uh, Tame Impala. Thank That's you. It. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, they're, both, they're both doing music. Right. And, uh, and I think lots of others have picked up on it. So it, it's looking better, but it's a very slow process. Right. I, I think there are, uh, who cares what I think, but I think there are some people in the sort of jazzier side who are doing some interesting things, obviously, uh, Jacob Collier and uh, mm. uh, people like that. But, but in terms of pure pop, uh, I, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, but is there a reason why, I'm, I'm sort of interested also in the lyrical side, um, the social commentary thing is almost non-existent today. I would yeah, say actually non-existent. No, I think you're right. It, it certainly appears to uh, either not exist or be neglected. Uh, Ray was the best social commentator for what was going on in England at the time he was writing. Exactly. Uh, Pete was more commenting about... The things that could be, and obviously with a, a much harder edge, which is yes. which is what I enjoyed about that. Yes, indeed. And yet, also, I mean, his his kind of, for me, his, his Ray Davis song was The Kids Are All Right, mm -hmm. because it was, it was quite of a sensitive, nice, gentle Oh, yeah, thing no, of, he, he did the occasional ones, like that, you know, Sunny Afternoon is... Uh, right. Uh, I think one of the great songs, and I mean that's another one I heard like four bars. I think fine, we're, that'll that'll be our next number one. Right, it was exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when you um, worked as a producer and you talked to the various, I, I've read that you spent a lot of time in what I guess we would call pre-production. Yeah. Discussing, listening, advising. Well, I also I did I rehearsed. I always rehearsed. Yes, and that's and that's another thing. Can you give me some examples of rehearsals? Uh, for, well, for sure, acts? because uh, I felt it incumbent on me to work with them and get the arrangement done. Also, so I was arranging yes. as well as yes. And of course, most of the bands didn't really read music, so no. um, I was there. We're, we're running through the songs, and I and I was suggesting places that. Things should be changed as part of the arrangement, right? And uh, we rehearsed until we got it, until we we're all happy. And and once again, because you were the hired producer right. or the the person in charge, right. they just said sure. Well, I I don't think it's quite as simple as that. Okay, I, sure. I have always uh, respected good musicians, and I've always gotten on extremely well with the bands I produced. Uh, not necessarily with the management, but with right. the bands. Indeed. And um, and I found that we were almost without questions uh, on the same page. Right. You know, we had the same aims in mind, uh, make the best record we could, hopefully it's going to be a hit. Yes. And, and you also had 
as you say, you insisted that the bands you were producing were very good musicians. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and you had that certainly with the Who, for instance. Yes. Um, and I want to ask you just something I I heard from uh, Oliver Reed, the actor who worked yeah with uh, Keith Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and most of the time we were working together, he was blind drunk. But when he wasn't, he was very articulate, and mm-hmm. he he had a great affection for Keith Moon. In fact, I. I had long discussions, and he was saying that maybe Keith Moon was crazy and wild and crazy, but when he sat behind the drums, he was a very serious musician and very serious about what he was doing. Is that uh, uh, Keith was uh, the best rock drummer of all time, in my opinion. Right. And uh, certainly behind the drums, as wild as he might have been, he was terrific. And the story I've told countless times is I did go over to him once, Early on, because as the other thing is, I'm sure you've read, I started just miking drums with a dozen mics, yes. which I brought with me from my recording engineering days. Yes. And uh, I said to Keith, um, I don't, uh, these mics are really expensive. I don't care how close you get, don't hit the damn things. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, no problem. <laughs> and he came within a millimeter, but he never hit a mic. Well, that's, thank goodness. <laughs> I'm sure the studios were very grateful for yeah. that. Um, I also have, have read a lot about uh, John Entwistle, that he was, actually, he could read music. Do you know, I, 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 I said so many times, I, I don't think I heard more than six words out of John, uh, John the entire time I recorded the Is that right? He was just Mr. Silence. I see. Well, maybe he felt that there was so much going on around him, he I just no relaxed. I know. Yeah, um, so he had people making up for it. I mean, certainly Mooney did, and and certainly um, so so did Pete. You know, so right. he probably reserved what he had to say till later. I don't know. <laughs> right. Um, I want to ask because we talked briefly just before we set up about arrangers, and of course, I've been an arranger all my life, and right. I've always been fascinated by arrangers. I'd like to hear something about how you work with actual arrangers. I know you have done a lot of orchestral things. Uh, yeah, I have. Uh, and uh, how I've worked with arrangers is gave them my concept of how I think it should be done. And we chatted about what they would do and how they'd go about it. And uh, I don't think I was ever dissatisfied. You know, okay. uh, I did employ very good arrangers who got it. Indeed. Been, and as I think I said to you over the phone, my my favorite was uh, David Whitaker. Indeed. Who was absolutely brilliant. You know, I, I did a an album uh, of uh, with, with him writing all the material called Music to Spy By. Right. Which uh, I still think is one of the best things I ever it did. It is great. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to yeah. it yesterday. Uh, and and you also did a very interesting album with Lee Hazelwood. I did. Forty. Yeah. yeah. And there were some very interesting ways to do songs on that too. Yeah. Uh, well, I, we did we did them obviously orchestrally, and David was the uh, the arranger on them. And uh, the way they came about is that Lee and I had the same attorney, it was Marty Michel, uh-huh. and he was about to turn forty, and uh, asked if I would like to 
produced the album for his 40th birthday and with the proviso that I picked the songs uh, as opposed to him doing stuff he wrote or country songs or whatever. I said, right. yeah, okay, that's cool. I like the idea. Okay. And um, so I did. I picked the songs. And, uh, and in retrospect, some of which I wish I hadn't picked, but uh, generally speaking, I think it came. they came out okay. And did you... Um discuss with him in general okay i want to do this song oh yeah, as yeah a rock sure. song like that yeah. and then you went to david whitaker afterwards that we want to do this as an right. x song yeah and, and and the budget was there for me to use uh, uh orchestral sections so. right right did you have a specific size of orchestra that you were looking for for that uh, no not necessarily but you know david and i had worked enough so that uh there was there was going to be a horn section. There was going to be a string section. There yes. Was, was yeah, you had woodwinds, horns. You yeah. had everything. Right. <laughs> so it sounds like you had a pretty big uh, group there. Um, did you ever work with uh, Jack Nietzsche? Never, no. Okay, okay. No, I, I knew Jack, and uh, uh, he was he's a nice, nice guy. I figured I can't understand anybody like him working with Phil Spector, but, you know, there you go. You can't win them all. Exactly, exactly. Well, he's in my book, so. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I make the point in the book that what is called the wall of sound or the Phil Spector sound. Which he did not do. Well, exactly, but which, which Jack Nietzsche, it seems to me, actually gave him. He gave him Gold Star Studios mm -hmm. with the reverb that's in Gold Star Studios. He yeah. gave him the Wrecking Crew guys. Who he'd already been working with, right? And Jack had already been using things like two and three drummers and eight timpani players right. and, and huge choirs. Oh yeah, no, no, no question. Jack was a major influence on him, as were the two engineers at Goldstar. Right. I mean, they, they basically worked out how to do the the so-called wall of sound that uh, he took credit for. Right. Right. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear you. Uh, Sort of uh, give some well, Stan, authority. Stan to Ross was a good friend of mine at, right. at Goldstar. Right, indeed. Um, he actually engineered a record that my dad did with Joe Venuti. Oh yeah. So at Goldstar, so mm. that was kind of an interesting thing. I, well, I, actually, that is the first record I ever did was at Goldstar. I did uh, a song I wrote called "Sitting Out a Saint" with Trini Lopez, huh. and um, I did it at Goldstar. That's that was my first real introduction into production. And and since since you worked there, can you tell me exactly what it was about that echo chamber that they had? Oh, I I I think they used a closet, I believe it was, and and um, they I think they experimented until they it, uh, it, these things come together, you know. I, there's no Nobody at that point was planning stuff out like that. No, no. I mean, they they, they had a, a space for an echo chamber, and uh, they did the best they could to make it sound like the way they wanted it to turn out to be great. Hmm. Uh, were there any other um, physical aspects of various studios that you worked in that you said, okay, I can take advantage of that particular thing that this studio has? Uh, you know, I always went for studios that I already knew were well set up, well stocked with microphones, uh, yes. acoustically excellent, and all that kind of stuff. And so, uh, apart from an initial inspection just to uh, 
convince myself that I was correct. Right. I uh, there was nothing. I just took advantage of the studio because it was a good studio. Right. And and did you have? You talked about Stan Ross. But did you have a number of engineers that you particularly wanted to use, or did you do most of it yourself? I started out doing a, 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 all all of it myself, and then um, I decided that I really could not do justice to doing that and producing at the same time because right. they're two entirely different jobs. Indeed, and producing takes a lot of concentration, and uh, so I started looking for engineers who are on the same page. I wound up with people like Glenn Johns in particular, right. who I right. used a lot, right. and I liked IBC a lot because it was a very well set up uh, studio with great acoustics, uh, it being an old Georgian house, as a matter of fact, right. and they had a pr preservation order on the ceiling, no less. <laughs> um, bought in consoles, they also built a lot of their own stuff. Ah. So, uh, there, they, and in fact, uh, Phil Yen, that, that's where he came from, and in fact, IBC was the place where most engineers in, in London started out at. Right. Well, engineers in those days always had the apprenticeship um, experience. In other words, they would become assistant Adult. engineers to somebody well, and learn become, from that like person. Like tape jockeys, in other words. Yeah, yeah, right. tape, tape ops. Yeah. But, but uh, they would learn their craft. And uh, I remember a friend of mine said that uh, his, his big moment was when the engineer, the chief engineer, called him up in the morning and said, oh, there's an orchestral session coming in at 10 o'clock. I'm not coming in. Have fun. Goodbye. <laughs> Yeah, and well, I was, that I knew a couple of uh, I I knew several of engineers who had that happen to them. So it's okay. Yeah. Well, obviously, <laughs> the guy thought he was ready for such yeah. a baptism by well, fire. Well, we all thought that. So yeah. And meanwhile, I'd like to say thank you so much for doing this interview. And uh, Radio Richard is grateful. I'm grateful, and the world is grateful. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have done it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Richard Niles here to tell you that my podcast and YouTube channel, Radio Richard, is not for kids. You've been warned. Kids really shouldn't check it out. Okay, unless those kids want to hear interviews with some of the most successful and respected musicians in rock, jazz, R&B, and pop. Okay, artists like Pat Metheny, Randy Brecker, and Mike Stern explaining how they changed the face of jazz. Or I suppose some teenagers might like to hear Michael McDonald or Richard Carpenter of the Carpenters or even Barry Manilow talk about their songwriting and production. And maybe there are a few youngsters who might be interested in Motown and want to hear how arranger David Vandepit helped Marvin Gaye make What's Going On. Or maybe, just maybe, a few of these kids might want to hear my interview with award-winning actor Gary Sinise. And okay, I suppose there are some people who might enjoy the great musical performances we have on Radio Richard, like The Yellow Jackets, Bob James, Jay Azalina, the Free Play Duo, and multi-Grammy winning guitarist Lawrence Juber. Well, okay, those few people should subscribe for free so they don't miss any of that. 
But apart from those people, Radio Richard is not for kids. Just stay away. Radio Richard, far, far away. Thank you. Radio Richard.